today on Ag News Daily. Once upon a time, I was a vegetarian, and and like a lot of vegetarians, I failed. I I now eat meat again, and I, but I've always had this sort of confliction about my meat eating, knowing that an animal has died. Good afternoon, ladies and gentlemen. My name is Delaney Howell, one of the hosts of the Ag News Daily Podcast, joined by my co-host, Mike Pearson. And Mike, you are traveling today, as I understand it. I am. I am down in Champaign, Illinois, down in the, uh, you know, down here they call it God's country in Illinois, talking to growers here with uh, United Prairie. And I tell you, it has been an interesting morning, Delaney. I had the chance to work with about 300 different growers down here, and overall, the consensus I think this is shared by a lot of folks across the country. 2019, toughest year of their farming careers. Had a few folks throw up some different years, but by and large, this uh, this last year was a doozy. Yeah, it definitely was, Mike. I think that's the general consensus I've heard from folks as well, is 2019 was a doozy, but hopefully 2020 will be a better year for everyone in agriculture. Oh, boy. Fingers crossed, Delaney Howell. Fingers crossed. We're off to a rather, oh, God, gosh, I apologize. Get three presentations this morning, so it's, it's kind of zapped from brain power. But it is off to an inauspicious start uh, to 2020. We have seen the markets trade range-bound soybeans blech, lower earlier this uh, this month. And it's just everybody's getting prepared for the big USDA reports tomorrow at 11, Delaney. Yes, indeed they are, Mike. Do you have this year's estimates in front of you? I've got some in front of me. Perfect. I'm glad you do because I do not, Delaney. Okay. Why don't you lay us on the line? What are you seeing? Okay, so really the big expectation, I guess there's maybe two big expectations, three big expectations if you look at it. So, of course, we know we've got ending stocks coming out tomorrow, yield, production, and the quarterly stocks number. So one of the uh, big, you know, concerns or I guess hopes for producers was that we are going to see the yield adjusted in this month's report. For corn and soybeans, corn especially, we've got a pretty big range of trade expectations all the way from 164.8 to 168.5. And back in November, the USDA had their corn yield at 167. So we're seeing the trade range kind of on either side of that. We'll see if USDA adjusts that tomorrow. For soybeans, I don't think this one's going to be as big of a surprise for anyone. In November, we saw the USDA come in at 46.9, and trade estimates are between 46 and 47.2 bushels per acre. Then when you look down, Mike, at the production estimates, those are some bigger numbers, again, especially in the corn industry, or the in the corn side of things. We saw the trade range from 13.217 billion bushels to 13.701 billion bushels, and back in November... USDA came in at 13.661. So seeing again the trade on either side of the USDA's guesses, but really quite a bit lower than where the USDA had us in November. As far as soybeans go, we are seeing the trade range pretty small there, 3.463 billion bushels to 3.565 billion bushels. So we will just see there's, I mean, you can go really through the range here and and corn seems to be the one that analysts don't really have a clue. The ranges are much larger on ending stocks, pretty large on quarterly stocks, 
in corn as well. So it's going to be an interesting report, that's for sure. Yeah, it will. You know, and as you talk about the corn projections, I think one of the major wild cards continues to be how is USDA going to treat all of the corn that is still standing in fields across the Dakotas, northern Minnesota, parts of Michigan, parts of Wisconsin. We know they're counting it as stored grain, but we know, and the trade knows, I should say, that a lot of that grain isn't going to stand until the combines roll. So the question is, how much is the USDA going to decrease those expected yields on that acreage that is still standing? And that's where you come into these, these huge discrepancies. You know, one firm thinks what, another firm thinks a different thing. And, and it's, yeah, it is it, t- tomorrow's Tomorrow at 11 o'clock, folks, have your eyes on the screen because it could be an interesting report. I do know from the Zaner perspective, as we look out at the world of soybeans in particular, we are one, we're the only or one of the few who are anticipating USDA to increase ending stocks for 1920 soybeans. Uh, We believe this because we're not entirely certain that the USDA will be as quick to reduce those, uh, excuse me, to uh, to increase the demand, uh, particularly from China here in the past two months. And, uh, you know, that that could uh, spook the market in a bearish direction should, uh, you know, should should the USDA report end up coming in with greater ending stocks? There's a lot to be worried about, a lot to be prepared for. Come tomorrow at 11 a.m. Central Time. I've got another piece of news that kind of builds on that, and this is a report from Reuters. It is basically a summation of what we have been talking about with regard to the first phase of the U.S.-China free trade, or not free trade agreement, but trade agreement that is going to be signed next Wednesday. The big new news that this report highlights is that China this week made fairly large purchases down in Brazil. Now, this is not a huge shock. Over the past year, we have seen China make very large soybean purchases out of Brazil. The Brazilian real has tumbled. It has made economic sense for them to do so. But a lot of us on the soybean side of the ledger were anticipating that perhaps China would hold off on new Brazilian purchases and wait until this thing was signed and then make the purchases from the U.S. We're not that much more expensive once you discount the tariffs that China is throwing on there. However, this week it was announced that China has purchased nearly 800,000 tons from Brazil this week alone. What does this mean? It means that the Chinese have met their bean demand imports, their, their requirements for their crushing companies for the entirety of the first quarter. So when that, you know, we're assuming that trade deal will be signed on Monday. If it does, don't expect the Chinese to jump in right away at least mm-hmm. for a lot of uh, a lot of new soybean purchases. Yeah, and I think the other big piece of that, not so much on the soybean side, but definitely on the corn side, is not to expect them to jump in and make any big corn purchases as well. We're seeing Brazilian farmers put on a record crop, a corn crop this year. They're expected to reach 101 million metric tons for the 2018-19 marketing year and predicted to harvest pretty much the same for the 2019-2020 marketing year, according to a new analysis put together by the Foreign Agricultural Services. That's about 23% more 
than they produced in the 2017-2018 years. So we're already seeing them increase year over year pretty drastically, unless, of course, they see some sort of weather issue. But I don't think as of now that's expected to happen for this growing season. And what's more notable, I think, as well, Mike, is their exports continue to strengthen. In 2018-19, we saw a 50% increase year over year. And in 2019-20, we continued to see them push the envelope, sending Brazilian corn overseas. Yeah, the the Brazilian corn has been a hot commodity. And like you say, other than that report by FC Stone here uh, a couple weeks ago with the Rio Grande del Sol region losing some production, by and large, weather's been favorable. You know, for the most part, those Brazilians look as though they're going to produce a fairly decent corn crop. And that is Oh, not what we like to hear on this side of the equator, Delaney. Yeah, and you know, I think the interesting thing too, I don't know if you and I have talked about it or if I talked about it with other producers, but you think about Brazil's safrina corn crop, that's their second corn crop. I don't want to say they don't care about that crop, but that's really just kind of like icing on the cake for them. They're not necessarily trying to get record yields during that time, but the fact that they're still producing so much of their crop during that second go-around is like, ooh, that makes it real hard for us to compete. Yeah, yeah, it's a struggle. And what, what would be great to happen, and I know as, uh, as Americans we hate to hear this, but if the dollar could weaken, that would be a beneficial factor. Mm-hmm. Or if the Brazilian real would strengthen, that would make us a little bit more competitive. But looking at those two scenarios, neither one seemed particularly likely given the ongoing bribery crisis, economic crisis in Brazil, which will keep their currency weak, and the you know, continued work here in the U.S., where we are the world's safest investing opportunity. So we're, yes. we're going to continue to see strength in the U.S. dollar the way things look. But I do have some interesting news, Delaney Howell. This is a Perhaps a slice of good news, a reminder that good things are happening out in agricultural country. NCBA, the National Cattlemen's Beef Association, went ahead and selected their Advocate of the Year. They selected Brandy Buzzard for Brosie, who is a blogger. She is from Kansas. She's a rancher and a social media influencer. And uh, she has been out there really raising issues of importance to the beef community. And I thought it was very cool to see her be celebrated by NCBA. That is very exciting. I believe she'll be at NCBA, or I'm positive she'll be at NCBA convention this year as well. Absolutely. Delaney, will you be heading down to San Antonio for the convention? I will, Mike. It's just right around the corner. And actually, speaking of that, it is convention season. We're in full swing here. Going to chat a little bit about that this week in our Global Ag Network newsletter. And we've also got a list of pretty much all the conventions and conferences you could possibly think of in our newsletter. So do be sure to sign up for that on our website, globalagnetwork.com. Mike, I have uh, just two other pieces of news. I think they're kind of related, talking about what's going on in the uh, protein industry as well as just the labeling industry in general. I shared this piece of news on our Facebook page and didn't even share it on the podcast, so I thought we should probably talk about that. But Virginia is making waves. They filed a new bill on Monday that would define milk as coming from a healthy hooved mammal, such as a cow, goat, yak, or reindeer, and are basically trying to 
adjust the way that their labeling happens there in the state of Virginia. I think I think you and I have speculated on this a little bit, but uh, the article goes on to explain really what happens with this type of labeling, because as you know, we often get products from outside of just our one state. And so under this bill, if it is passed, we don't know that or not, it just got presented on Monday, but if this bill passes, we will not really see anything happen in the state of Virginia until... 11 other states pass a similar labeling requirement to alleviate those interstate commerce concerns. We've seen North Carolina pass a very similar bill, but there's 11 other states that still need to pass it to see it officially take over in Virginia. We are seeing, however, it come to legislation in Wisconsin. It's been chatted about in Michigan as well. So there are some states making moves to see some sort of similar bill uh, passed in their states as well. You know, uh, this was discussed on Twitter, and, and, you know, it's an interesting piece of legislation. It's another one of those things that, that seeks to put a very fine point on what is and what isn't milk. Mm-hmm. And it was pointed out to me that maybe they left a really important milk out of the definition. Delaney, do you know what that milk might be that is not covered as milk in Virginia anymore, should these laws take effect? Hmm. I'm thinking... I mean, human mm, yeah, milk, so you, human milk, mother's milk. Uh, apparently that could no longer be, uh, be milk, but uh, you know, who sells mother's well, milk? You know, at the end of the day, that's the, uh, that's the counter argument is so you know, you're not arg- find that yeah. in a grocery store. I mean, so this bill says any mammal, but it does say hooved mammal. Hooved. So we're not hooved. hooved. mammal. That's yeah. the key. Right. We definitely have uh, phalanges down there rather than hooves. Yes. I suppose that's a very interesting point. Right. So, you know, it's one of those things when we, uh, I don't know, I, I go back and forth on this issue. I know we've discussed labeling on the podcast quite a bit. If we're going to make laws based on labels, they have to be specific. Mm-hmm. Um, but at the same time, just let the market sort it out. You know, well, everybody knows almonds, you know, don't lactate. I don't know. Uh, I'm of two minds on this issue. I wish I, I had a, it's, it's not I wish really I had a, a guru to steer yeah, me in the right direction. It's not necessarily a cut and dry issue and neither is the uh, beyond meat burger exactly we are exactly seeing mcdonald's yeah we're seeing mcdonald's actually as of wednesday they said they're going to expand a trial going on right now in canada of their vegan burgers made by beyond meat i'm a little disappointed by this because i thought mcdonald's took much more of a hardline approach saying no we have to have meat as part of our burgers but they are rolling this trial out in canada and i assume if it's successful they we could see them roll that out in the u.s as well yeah, I would imagine that's their uh, their testing laboratory up there in the Great White North. So Canadians, you know, do your thing. Make sure it fails so it doesn't come down here. Yeah, no kidding. Well, Delaney, I am all out of news. Should we see where the market's wrapped up for the day? Let's do it, Mike. All right, folks. We've got a little bit of weakness in corn and soybeans today, but wheat was on a rocket ship. 
Looking at the corn market, March corn down three quarters penny at 383 and a half. The May down one and a quarter to finish at 390 even. Over in soybeans, the January con- well, who cares about January? The March contract was down four cents at 943 and a quarter. November new crop down four and a quarter to finish at 971 and a quarter. As I mentioned, wheat was on fire today. The March wheat contract in Chicago up nine and a half cents at 562 and a quarter. The May up eight and three quarters to finish at 565 even. Jumping over to the world of livestock, we saw strength return to the cattle complex. February live cattle up 37.50 at 126.72 half. April up 25 cents, finished today at 127.30. Strength also in feeder cattle, not nearly as strong as yesterday's move. The March contract up two and a half cents at 146.55. The April up 15, finished today at 149.17.50. Weakness, though, in lean hogs. The February contract was down $2 even to close at 67.02.50. The April down $1.27.5 to finish at 74.47.5. Let's not forget about our friends in the dairy industry. More weakness again today in the Class 3 milk contract. January was down a nickel at 16.95, with the February down 11 cents to close at 16.98. Without further ado, Delaney, let's kick it over for our interview. to be joined from way across the pond today by Matthew Evans, who I won't take too much time to explain who he is, but he's an author, he's a gourmet chef, he's a farmer, and he's got a lot of interesting perspective to share with all our listeners today. Matthew, thanks so much for taking the time to chat with us, and would you give our listeners a better background about yourself than anything I could share? Yeah, so so great. Thanks for having me, Delaney. Look, I'm, I'm yeah, I'm a chef by trade. Originally, I uh, I trained, uh, did an apprenticeship, a, a traineeship, um, in ki- commercial kitchens, and then got interested in where food came from, and and found myself suddenly growing food, and I, I became a farmer. So I now have a mixed farm. I'm, I'm in southern Tasmania, which is a state off the south of Australia. So we're about as far south as you can get in Australia, and we grow. Uh, 70 different types of annual vegetables, about 30 different perennial plants, fruits and nut trees and that kind of thing. We fatten pigs, we milk cows and we have a little restaurant on site. So um, I use my chef training and background to cook the produce that we grow for our little um, farmhouse kitchen. And um, and we, we have people once or twice or sometimes three times a week come and eat everything that comes from within our fence line to try and, t- you know, I guess, capture the essence of this one little corner of the globe on the plate. Matthew, and it's interesting, your dye, your delve into where food comes from has culminated in a book called On Eating Meat. Can you tell us a little bit about what inspired you to write it and what is your main thesis? Yeah, my, I, I guess where I started from, I mean, once upon a time I was a vegetarian and, and like a lot of vegetarians, I failed. I, I now eat meat again. And I, but I've always had this sort of confliction about my meat eating, knowing that an animal has died for me to eat meat essentially. And, um, and then when I started growing food, I began to realize that not all farmland is suitable to grow vegetables. It's not all suited to grow grains or fruit. And what we do on our little farm is actually we kill way more animals to grow fruit and vegetables than we do to put meat on the table. Um, and I sound, that sounds counterintuitive, but um, you know, we, there's, the, there's, a, there's an, uh, a certain number of insects, but also rodents, and occasionally birds that, that die for us to be able to grow fruit and vegetables. And I wondered if that happens to me, I wonder if that happens more broadly. Does growing 
food generally have an impact on animals that we hadn't um, necessarily taken into account. And if it does have an impact on animals, then maybe what we should consider more is the lives of the animals that are in our care rather than the, the deaths that happen. And when I looked more widely, I discovered in Australia, we, we kill um, tens of thousands of, of ducks each year to grow rice. Um, they're shot by hunters who, because I guess, it, I guess when, when people farm, they grow something super nutritious and super delicious and humans aren't the only thing that wants to eat it. <laughs> and, and we compete with, with everything else in the ecosystem. And what happens is sometimes to protect crops, we have to kill animals. And um, so I guess that was, that was my starting point was what's the impact? And my finishing point is we should all just feel good about our decisions. I'm not trying to convince people to eat meat or not eat meat. That's a personal choice and, and based on your own belief systems. But to recognise that all farming has an impact and that can be, you know, minimised or, or can, can be, uh, you know, there can be uh, bad, bad impacts from farming. But it, you know, animals are always affected whether we eat meat or not. And I think that's so interesting. I read an article, Matthew, where you were interviewed called, Are You Really a Vegan? Where you kind of go through this whole thought process of even if you do not eat meat, you're still, you know, killing some sort of animal or insect in the long run. How do you communicate that with people or share that information with people who are vegetarian or vegan and how do they react to that? Yeah, it's sort of interesting. I think if people have a belief system, so I think that some people are vegan because um, they, they want to sort of minimise their impact and they're not interested in converting anyone else. And, and it's just something that they, they do and they're not really strict. You know, if, if someone accidentally serves something with a bit of pork fat on it, they're not going to, um, you know, it's not, it's not a huge issue. But other people have a belief system and you can't, it'd be very hard to change that belief system uh, through, through um, <laughs> trying to be rational argument. But what I was trying to do was take the debate, I guess, into the middle and take it away from the most intensive farms. And in Australia, as I imagine it is in America, the, there's lots of lobby groups who want you to eat more of meat, more meat, but more of their meat. So the Chicken Meat Federation wants you to eat more chicken and the red, red meat uh, producers want you to eat more red meat. And that's their goal. And, and they argue one end of the spectrum. And then you've got sort of these militant vegans who say that all meat is murder. And I want to bring the debate into the middle and say, well, your average person in Australia eats meat. Um, uh, they'd like to think that they're not causing too much harm. Uh, they'd like to think that farmers look after the animals in their care. And are there better decisions that you can make around that? So I'm trying to talk to the the people in the middle, not the extremes of the of, of the debate, and, and to put some intelligent uh, uh, and reasoned arguments behind it rather than just sort of belief systems or emotional um, or, or um, you know, <laughs> I guess, economic um, arguments, which, uh, you know, far farmers are often uh, resort to the economic argument if you, you know, you need to buy my food for me to stay um, afloat. Um, and uh, that's great, but people will buy all sorts of different stuff based on um, the information they're given. And farmers will, will do what consumers expect. That's the truth. Now, Matthew, when you were doing the research and writing on eating meat, what was one of the things that really jumped out to you as a surprise or, or took you by surprise as you were doing the work preparing to write the book? Yeah, I think the, the biggest things were, the, well, I guess near me, we, we live in an apple growing region, and I'd never thought of apples as being 
um, you know, uh, having having much of an impact on the animals in in there that, that, that are around. That, that, you know, if you grow apples, yeah, a few moths, you might kill a few moths, you know, coddling moths, and you might just spray for a couple of things. But generally, it's pretty low impact. But then I was I was chatting to my local orchardist, and he was telling me that he was shooting one possum a day. A possum's a, a tree dwelling marsupial that we have um, huge numbers of in, in Tasmania, and he was saying that he he and this year again he lost uh, you know ten twelve thousand dollars worth of apples um, through uh, possum damage. So what he does, he's allowed to he's allowed to shoot uh, cat trap and shoot these um, these marsupials, and he does that. And then I realised that every time you eat an apple, you're sort of part of this system. Um, every time you eat cherries, the cherry orchardists um, you know have a massive impact on on birds. Um, through their nets and uh, and possums as well, they also kill possums. And I guess I was, I was really shocked that I, I guess when I thought, you know, vegans and vegetarians might think a lot of the death that might happen when you harvest, say with a, a combine harvester, uh, I'm not sure what they're called in America, but um, you know, the thing that takes the, the the head off the top of the wheat, um, yeah, you know, a lot of mice might die or insects might die in that process, and they're sort of accidental deaths. But realizing that there are farmers who have to protect crops, who I guess choose the victim. They look at the, you know, in the eye of the deer or the, or the possum or the wallaby or the kangaroo that they're going to shoot um, to protect the crops so that they can put food on the on the table of your average Australian. I think that shocked me most. It's it's going to be really interesting to read this book. But Matthew, I think one of the final questions I have is. We uh, were reading through a press release that was released, and it said that you call for less radicalization, greater understanding, and for ethical omnivores to stand up for the value of welfare of animals and farmers alike. When you look at that principle, that last part of it there, the omnivores to stand up for the welfare of animals and farmers alike, what did you mean by that sentiment, and how can we, I guess, partake in that? Yeah, so so what I'm, I'm trying to talk to those 98 percent of people who eat um, dairy products or um, eggs and and meat um, you know the vast vast majority of people aren't vegan and and, the, and most of us aren't vegetarian so they're the omnivores they eat meat as, as part of their diet and I think what's happened is for a long time meat eaters have said um, oh we know death happens but it's too scary we don't want to know know what happens in our name on farmers and farmers have become more uh, industrial farmers have become more secretive um, and not not got social license. So some of the things that are done on farms uh, around the world um, wouldn't meet community expectations. And nobody has 40,000 know, pigs in sheds for their own consumption. They're doing it for on behalf of the, the omnivores, the, the meat eaters of the world. And so what I'd like to think is that farmers can do things and hold their, their heads high and be proud of what they do. And the people who buy the food who are, uh, are happy to know that the, the animals are looked after in a way that they um, they agree with and, and think is a, an appropriate level of care. For, for what's happened in the meantime is, yeah, people have generally gone, I want it cheap. I don't want to know what's done in my name. Uh, and when they see it, they become outraged. Uh, and instead of being part of the, the debate from the start, saying, well, we know we eat meat, we know it has an impact, all, all food growing, all you know, human activity has an impact on animals. But what's the best way we can do it? I mean, that's the, I think it's a fundamental human thing. What's the best way we can live um, so we don't ruin the land that, that nurtures us and supports us and gives us food? Absolutely. That is a huge point to consider. How can we continue to be better stewards of the environment in which we live? Matthew, for listeners who really want to get a hold of your book, where can they find On Eating Meat? 
Look, in the US, um, it, it'll be available through Amazon, um, and uh, I'm not sure how widely distributed it should be. Your, your good, good booksellers will be able to order it, um, uh, no, no doubt. Um, it's one of those books that uh, sometimes appears in the farming section, sometimes appears in the ethical eating section, uh, depending on uh, the bookseller that you're dealing with. But it's certainly one of those things that um, it's not aimed uh, at, at, it's not trying to have a go at vegans, it's not trying to have a go at um, industrial farmers, it's trying to say, look, we're all humans, we're all in this together. What's, what, what are the best decisions you can make every time you eat um, uh, when you spend your money, what are, what are the best decisions you can make for farmers, for the communities um, that, that uh, farmers live in and, and that support you and for the animals and the environment that feeds us? Well, that Fantastic. Be Matthew Evans. Oh, go ahead, Lee. I, I was just going to say that, Matthew, that's going to be really interesting to read. I just got a copy myself, so I'm excited to sit down and read through that. We really appreciate you joining us today. Pleasure, pleasure. I'm off to pick brambleberries. We're in the height of summer in um, in southern Tasmania, so I'm standing here in my short in my shorts with with berry juice all over my fingers. <laughs> well, enjoy the rest of your day, Matthew. Thanks again for taking the time to chat with us here on the Ag News Daily Podcast. Thanks, Mike. Thanks, Delaney. Well, again, a big thank you there to Matthew. And again, that book, folks, if you're interested in reading it for yourself, is called On Eating Meat. But I think it's really interesting to see somebody, you know, transition from, I don't remember if he said he was a vegetarian or a vegan at one point, but then becoming more mainstream and accepting that, you know, that's just part of the life cycle. Yeah. And you know what? I, I think when, when we listen to Matthew and hopefully listeners, you got this in our conversation. He is a very balanced person. You know, he said repeatedly, I'm not here to tell you what to eat, what not to eat. Just consider what it is you're eating and the ramifications, because no matter what we do, whatever we put in our mouths is produced by someone. And there are environmental consequences, whether you're vegan, whether you're vegetarian, whether you're keto, whether you're paleo, whether you're strict carnivore, whatever it is you choose to do. Understand what you're doing and understand the ramifications. Anytime we can grow like that as people, it's a win, Delaney. Absolutely. That's a great way to summarize that interview, Mike. Nice job. Thank you, Delaney Howell. And listeners, if you want other fantastic interviews piped directly into your ear holes, check us out. You can get our past episodes at agnewsdaily.com. That'll take you right over to the Global Ag Network. You can catch up on our episodes as well as the episodes of other talented podcasters on the network. And, of course, visit us on social media. Find us on Facebook, on Twitter, on Instagram. Just search for Ag News Daily in the search bar, and we'll be right there. We love to hear from our listeners. With that, Delaney, should we let the people go? Let's let them go.